All right, so before we get into the article club this week, I wanted to share a uh, quick word from one of our sponsors, which is Anchor, which is where I launch uh, this podcast every week. Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. We are here with a great group again. Uh, we're talking about an article Kevin picked this week titled Traditional Methodology, Prospects for Change. It was written by uh, Dr. Cheryl Hoffman in... 1971. Uh, we got a similar cruise last time, uh, minus Aaron. So we got Tori, Kevin, and Michael. But I'm going to go right in with uh, the first question to Kevin and ask, where the hell did you find this article and why did you pick it? Um, so in, in terms of where the hell I found it, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, Michael, I don't know if you remember reading this or not, but but this was a Templin read during grad school. I'm, I'm sure of that. And it's just a paper that always really stuck with me for a few different reasons. First of all, um, you know, if you if you look to find uh, the, the start date, so when was occupational socialization theory like developed and projected as a theory? Um, you know, a lot of people will point to the, the Lawson 1983 articles. I'll go a little bit farther back and say that the, uh, uh, Tom Templin's dissertation paper, which was uh, published in 1979 in RQES, that to me is really the, the starting point of the use of occupational socialization theory. But before that, there were a few papers that, that kind of talked about socialization without calling it that. In that, in this paper, this, this Hoffman paper, I, I think is one of the earlier examples of that. So this is really capturing major socialization issues within physical education, um, the, the, the way that you know, intergenerational cycles of socialization limit um, the introduction of new or new or innovative methodologies. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the crazy thing about it to me is that, that you could pick this up. Like if you had taken the date off of this and made it look like it was a newer PDF and told me that this was just submitted to Quest, I, I would almost believe you. Aside from the fact that the references are outdated and the, the, the Hoffman writes in a way that, that's very elegant, but I, I don't think we really see so much nowadays in, in our journals. But aside from those kind of minor things, the topics and the issues that he raises are, are, are really germane to, to still what we're talking about now. And I think that the most poignant part of that comes at the very end of the paper. I'm just going to read about a paragraph of text here right at the very end where he really kind of brings the point home and solidifies it in a way that, that after I read this, like you just get chills because it's almost like, man, that's so right. And I don't think that I could ever say it better than that. Um, so he said, again, if the forces responsible for the persistence of traditionalism are to be redirected, the evangelical thrust of modern methodological movements must be aimed at appropriate target populations. It is important that those responsible for the preparation of physical education teachers acquire and maintain a flexible attitude towards alternative teaching styles, something that I think that we would still believe to this day. However, unless the same attitude has filtered down to the veteran teacher supervising the student teaching experience, a powerful force for the exclusive perseverance of traditionalism remains unchecked. Also, unless intensive educational efforts are directed towards administrators, parents, and others who expect the teacher to display predictably traditional behaviors, this force will continue to repeal all efforts to change. That, that to me, is a summary of occupational socialization theory that, that I think would be a good summary um, with everything that we know today. And this was written in 1971. 
So that's why I picked this paper. That's a good explanation of why you picked that paper. And I highlighted the same uh, paragraph that you uh, that you wrote in the continued unchecked patterns of traditional behavior. And I think it's, you know, I and I, I wrote down on here, continued and unchecked patterns of traditional behavior, even though meritorious can work their way to stagnant corruption. And I looked at that and I'm like, well, yeah, like new pedagogies will never happen. They're going to be invented. They're going to be tested in higher education and out of our labs or out of our research projects, but they're never going to be really adopted unless we are fully like committing to getting the student teachers supervisor on bar board, the university supervisor on board, the you know the the school district where we're implementing this pilot study to then adopt these practices. And I I feel you know those are those are the problems that we come up against. And you know at Mason we've been really really lucky with great cooperating teachers. I think they're on board. They we gone through and they go through this training we vet the people who we send to and we're very happy with where we are i don't think that's the same across the board in in different institutions and you know even some institutions it's like hey the student goes out of area and says i want to go with this person if that place is out of the area does the peat faculty go in and double check that this person is of quality or do you just have this washout effect immediately when you go into your student teaching of everything you just learned. Well, yeah, and I would I would argue, and, and maybe Tori, you could speak to this a little bit too, because based on the, the cooperating teacher study that we did back when we were at Alabama together, um, but, but, you know, I would argue that that actually begins before student teaching. Like when we send them out for early field experiences, they're seeing models of physical education that potentially conflict with um, what we're teaching them in universities. And even if we're still the prime, even if we're there with them and we're a presence during the field experience, they still get that, that kind of negative modeling from the, the cooperating teachers. Would you agree, Tori, from, from what we saw in Alabama? I'd say that's true. And predominantly at the secondary level than at the elementary level, but absolutely that range. Um, the big thing too, is that we were seeing so many teachers that were not fulfilling you know, proper knowledge-based teaching or even teaching as we would desire to see it happening, um, that we started to say, well, the student teachers or the teachers in their early field experiences will be the ones that are giving these students good experiences, like the children good experiences. So that's our way of making it okay that we're sending them out to these settings where they're then seeing teachers successfully getting paid and not performing the skills and then almost reiterating, again, this traditional approach. So it's a, a mixed bag there. Yeah, I mean, think about just, you said model-based practice. Where where can you and your local community send a student teacher to go to, if you've been teaching TPSR in your program, is there a place that teaches TPSR really well every single year? Or is it one or two schools where you have eight to 10 student teachers every semester? How do you, how do you guide those students through that program to see that in action? I think we can we can show it in peer teaching. We can show it in in our classrooms. But is that happening in the field? Who runs a good sport ed unit? Can you go in and demonstrate that sport ed unit, um, or is it just all practical, you know, knowledge that we're taking in or theoretical knowledge that we're taking in in classes? Yeah, 
what, yeah, what you know, you know I, we, oh sorry I, I was just going to say I, I i just don't want to limit the discussion here because i think that these kinds of issues that we talk up that we're talking about um begin during those early field experiences and student teaching but they only extend and intensify when our, our graduates leave our programs and go out and start working in schools um where, where they may face you know significant pressures focused on conformity and maintenance of the status quo uh, that, that may limit their their efforts to be innovative uh, and their ability to be innovative. Um, uh, you know, so it, it, it's definitely something that shows up for us during um, Pete, but, but to say that it stops when student teaching stops, and I don't think that that's what we were saying, but I just wanted to make sure that we kind of extended that conversation and understood that that it's just as much, in, if not more of an issue during during their teaching careers than it is during Pete. Yeah. Well, what did you think, Michael? It, so I, I think there's a sense that this article was time or, you know, was timely in 1971 and the issues remain today. And to the extent that uh, that's true, I mean, it can be read as an indictment of a generation of our discipline. I mean, it, it would suggest that the, education that we are providing is not in demand in public schools. Um, I mean, if, if it's being wholly dismissed uh, in exchange for other strategies that we may view as uh, high quality or not, and depending on the context, but you know, schools, uh, schools have an administrative structure that is um, largely public, uh, so answerable to the public. Um, and schools of education are responsible for preparing people to meet the needs of that public uh, entity. And, um, you know, I think a kind of a sense of reciprocity might be necessary here. It's what is, what is it that the public wants from us? And do we at least meet them halfway uh, in, in that? You know, certainly we have some disciplinary knowledge, but um, if the public are looking for certain things that, maybe we're not baking into our understanding that we may be missing something there. And that's, that's one takeaway for me here is that, gosh, this is, this perpetual challenge remains. Um, it might be time to look inward a little more. You know, I, I think, uh, I know that my voice has been consistent here, but, but Michael, you, you, you brought up something there that really made me think about conversations that I've had with, with Hal Lawson and other scholars over the years where he asked that question, if we if we uh, if we hadn't built it this way, would we do it differently now? So if if, if we had a chance to start, because what what we have now is all this history, tradition, and baggage, right? So people get socialized through physical education programs. We come to expect them to be a certain way, be that positive or negative, based on their experiences. Some of those people go on and, and come into Pete, but others just go on and live their lives, and it may at some point cross over. Um, you know, as parents or as administrators where, where they're in a position to critique or evaluate physical education, and they may do that based on their prior experiences. So all of that baggage kind of sits with us, and it prevents us from moving forward. It, like, weighs us down. Uh, and, and, you know, generally, I think that, that many of us would say that the version of physical education that we're talking about, this, these traditional practices, foci, in these programs are not relevant to today's kids and they're not aligned with the overarching mission of promoting a, a, a lifelong enjoyment and involvement in physical activity. So if we hadn't built it this way, what would physical education look like now? If we could get rid of this baggage, bulldoze it and start over, 
how would it look different? Well, I think that there's like really good innovative work about around meaningful PE from Tim Fletcher and, um, you know, scholars in that Lampum PE kind of group. And I think that, you know, it could, it should probably be where, and this goes to what Michael is saying is, you know, are we meeting them halfway? Like, are we meeting, are we answering to society what they want out of PE or are we just recreating the same same thing. And I think that having meaningful physical education or physical activity experiences is super important, number one. But how, how do we, um, how do we provide that? And so in, in the article, uh, it says that, uh, talking about the idea that traditional model works so well because it can be memorized, studied, and then enacted with little effort Routines are the same and they can be easily recalled, right? So if I teach you one way to teach, you have a warm-up, you have an anticipatory set, you have your skills, you have your, you know, informing and extension, refinement and application, and then we go through a closure. If I can root, routinize that whole entire lesson, it's a lot easier for me to teach that across the board. Whereas if I come into a class of 30 and go, what do you all like? What do you want? How can I make this class for you? That second path is way more difficult. And then we've already gone down this road of standards-based learning. So we have all these standards that we have to hit. And so we, we're, I think we're, we're constrained by a lot of things. And again, if you could bulldoze it over, right? We would add a lot more freedom. We would add a lot more, you know, Student-centered pedagogy would add a lot more student choice and meaningful physical activities and physical education, but how do we do that? Do you guys have a bulldozer handy? Are you willing to go out and drive that bulldozer and tear it all down? And does it have to be torn down or can it be modified within the system that we're already in? Yeah, I mean, the one area that I think... Uh can, can, you know, bulldoze that is um, low partnerships. So, I mean, if you, if you can find a school to partner with to design a program uh, that is reciprocal and listens to the needs of the school, but also brings your needs and interests to the table, then some good work can be, can be done there. Um, you know, Tom Martinick is my colleague who's done that. He, started a, a middle, they call it a middle college, it's a high school, um, and was able to design a physical education program around the TPSR model um, and, you know, provide some student experiences through that. And so, you know, I think we could see more exemplars perhaps of what, you know, good innovative physical education could look like um, and perhaps use that as a means to train our students. But, you know, bring it to the attention of, you um, principals and superintendents and school board members in a way that gets a little more kind of coherence across those categories because I the things when we say gosh we need to get PE to do this or that I've never gotten a sense that there's like that public drive to meet us there that there's that concern to say gosh from a public perspective we got to get that um, make that to happen as well and in fact a lot of times the things that we lament uh, the 
public school officials are quite pleased with in regards to physical education. Um, you know, so that's my one bulldozer is like a partnership, small scale, local level, but then use your scholarship to tell those stories and, and move something forward. I'd reiterate that in terms of the research with the community-based partnerships who've shown that's effective, that people that we're interacting with when we do those projects respond really positively and want to see more of it happening and don't understand why more people wouldn't want to benefit from it. But how do we get that information out there? We're so siloed in higher education, and there's only so many of us, particularly in peace. So making that message be more broad or impacting more people to create community partnerships, maybe within schools, not necessarily university partnerships that aren't going to be reliant necessarily on us as P individuals because that's just it's too much for a small group. We need more more partners, I guess, partners, 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 ongoing. How does that happen? And I think one of the challenges related to this, Risto, is that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I, I think as, as researchers, we try to develop, and as educational theorists and programmers as well, you know, not just researchers, but we try to develop models that we can then scale and bring to other environments. And, and one of the challenges I think that we run into is that every school context is, is constructed socially, constructed socially different. Um, and so, you know, on the, on the face value, some um, uh, contexts, some schools, some districts really value physical education, whereas others don't. Um, but, but I think that you have to start by, by doing needs assessments and things like SWOT analyses. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you a quick example. Um, I have a doctoral student, Shelby Eisen, who, who's been working with me uh, the last couple of years, and she's doing some work with uh, Chad Killian and Shannon Pennington, who's also a doc student here at Illinois, up in Elgin, um, where they've gone in and completely revamped the physical education program um, so that it starts off in the first year with like a common uh, freshman, for, first year, sorry, first year wellness type course um, and then students have great choice uh, and flexibility in what courses they take through the rest of the program, including AP physical education courses that earn them, um, uh, you know, the, the 5.0 GPA instead of the 4.0 scale. They had some students who didn't want to take PE because they were high achieving and felt like the inability to get um, AP credit was going to hurt uh, th their college prospects. And like that, they, they listened. They did, they did surveys, talked to teachers, talked to students. Uh, and completely rebuilt this program around what the students were saying that they wanted. Um, and Shelby Chad and, and Shannon and, and others as part of that team are going to be doing some work on that moving forward. But that's a very responsive approach. It's not going in and trying to impose upon the environment with what you think should be happening. It's talking to those stakeholders and co-constructing something. Mm -hmm. I wonder uh, if, if there's a ways we can think about alliances with our colleagues in um, schools of education. Uh, some of us are in schools of education, but, you know, people who are in STEM education, English education, um, other areas of teacher education. I, I don't know enough about that, that, that research at all, but I just have a, a sense from kind of seeing what colleagues are doing on campus and things like that, that they they have a, they do a better job of being coherent between what schools want and what they're doing in their teacher education programs. Uh, they're better accepted in schools, and some of that is because they're not in a marginalized subject area. But 
I wonder if alliances and partnerships with those schools of education could position us in a way that uh, PE could be more valued, could be more interdisciplinary, um, seen as central to the mission of overcoming certain challenges that schools face. I, I'm thinking about a local example where I, you know, I talked to a school principal and he talked about the need for students to um, go to PE and just get that energy out, you know, and I get that, right? But sometimes we hear that and we're like, gosh, you missed the point. It's not about, it's not recess. They should be learning. And so, you know, how can we partner with our, our colleagues in education so that it can be a learning endeavor um, when they're going in to try to help schools overcome overcome certain challenges? It's not just kind of a recess uh, orientation. Yeah, and I mean, your your colleague, Martinek, you know, I, I think that's an interesting case right there of you can't make it work in schools. You can't, like, do what you want to do. So you create something new. You create a new school so you can do what you feel is necessary and it probably shouldn't lead all the way that far down the line to have to create a new school to be able to do the work that you want to do. And I, I'll be honest, like, that's part of the reason why, you know, part of what I do has been pushed into the after school space because I feel like there's so much more flexibility there. You know, people are happy to have you come in. They're like, Oh, you're going to run a program for us. Like, great. We don't have any physical activity that's structured like this, or this seems really cool. Let me, let me check with one person. Yep. They said they're good. You know, welcome in versus coming in and taking over PE course and, changing that. And it seems like, Kevin, what you're talking about is there are schools, obviously there are schools that are interested in this, but I, I feel like it's way harder to go through some school districts. I do. And I, and I don't, um, I, 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 I agree with, I agree with that Risto. Um, you know, but, but at the same time, what concerns me is that if we, if we move all of our work out of school spaces, uh, then, then I think that that threatens our footing in schools and our relevance to physical education teachers. I mean, I think going into some outside of school spaces makes sense. Tori and I uh, operated in a lot of out of school spaces down in Alabama, and I know that Tori you did in Wyoming as well. Uh, and there are some real advantages in terms of flexibility to working in those hours. But, but I just I would caution us about completely going outside of the structure of schooling, because if we divorce ourselves from that too much, then I think that creates other problems. And that's not to say that anything negative about the work that somebody like Tom has done, for example. I, I think that what he did with the middle college is really innovative, but we can't all just go creating our own schools. <laughs> I, I 100 percent agree that we should not all just go in the after school like we we are in teaching and learning research in physical education and for us to go outside of that framework to go into after school programs even though we have like we have the benefit of the flexibility it's not realistic so like my research arguably does not transfer the same way into a PE course because I have two hours Tuesday Thursday they have 45 minutes, maybe Tuesday, Thursday, with all of these other things and announcements and having to change and all of these different things. And I think that, you know, I there are times that I do feel guilty of, okay, am I doing the right thing by going out of schools to doing research and after school programs? Is it realistic? I feel like 
in some points, like it is, it's helpful, but in, in other ways, I feel like there, there could be a lot more that could be done in different ways. And I think that reiterates the component of a partnership because if we are working together, um, coming up with the same approach, then we're going to have more positive impact instead of I'm siloed and out of school and I'm siloed in PE. But we did see that happen, you know, in Alabama, there was several times where the school we were working at, the teacher was like, well, that works after school, but it just won't work during the PE day, which wasn't the case, truly. They just, it hadn't been applied in that setting and experienced in that setting, so it wasn't conceivable. Um, so having more partnerships instead of an us versus them, because it seems to be that's kind of the approach we've started taking. Things like the models that we've started to see coming out more and more, like CSPAP, that's combining several different areas during the day. Um, those are the kinds of approaches I think we'll see more of an impact on, on during school time teaching, while we can still also do this work in out of school and have that freedom, seeing how they go together. Because they're really, they go together. You know, another observation from, you know, the 1971 writing, it was, it was teacher-centered, whereas I think the discourse today is more learner-centered uh, compared to that. And it makes me think about this conversation for after school. It's, um, for me, I consider an after-school program physical education in the sense that we're trying to meet learners where they are at and provide them with a quality physical education experience. Now, certainly, um, in-school physical education is its own unique thing. But um, we saw over the last, since I was in uh, um, graduate school, us attach ourselves to positive youth development. Um, and this is largely after school work. Uh, and this new movement of social emotional learning, I wonder if it provides some, a new opportunity for us because it, um, it's largely consistent with this, the idea of youth development through sports, the idea that we can do social emotional learning through sports. I know the constructs are different if we want to talk in a kind of a nerdy way, but these things um, map onto each other really well. But we haven't seen this like national movement uh, that we could attach to that we have now with social emotional learning. I mean, it, it's really got a research base behind it. It's got momentum, it's got interest from policymakers, and physical education, I think, is pretty well situated to say that we can offer something in terms of social emotional learning through in-school physical education, and that we've been doing it really well in, in a positive youth development sense. And so, um, you know, I hope that's a new kind of frontier that we can uh, move into to try to move the needle on this issue of, you know, marginalization and being more respected in schools and so forth. I think that piggybacking off of that, there's one component of the article where they talk about how traditionally the physical educator is the, I want to say a, a school disciplinarian, what the term was. So it'd be really interesting to see based on the SEL component if that could then transition into a different leadership role of leading an SEL initiative or being the go-to for that instead of this negative connotation. Yeah, let me, so I, I totally agree. Let me, let me ask you a different question, um, you know, about the process that uh, Hoffman talks about good teaching and has that really changed? Because I think in 1971, he wrote that good teaching uh, 
has been basically incorporate the process of explanation, demonstration, drill and practice on basic skills, lead up activities, and game participation as fundamental elements. Is that much different than what we are actually like teaching at this point? Not in my opinion, no, it's very similar. <laughs> what about you, Michael? Yeah. I would say for me, it, it, start, it would start with relationships. That um, is a prerequisite to all that. You know, the ability to relate to your students um, is going to lead to good teaching, which I, I do think you end up looking at those things you mentioned. You know, are they demonstrating things well such that students can understand it? You know, are there some uh, lead-up activities that help students understand the concept being taught and so forth. But I think going back to that teacher-centered versus learner-centered piece that uh, we're much more thinking about relationships now and uh, we're going to be moving more and more to thinking about cultural competency and things like that that maybe undergird those those things. And I didn't get the sense from reading this that that was a main line of thinking uh, in the 1971 literature. I would agree that I think it's, and I know everyone on this in this conversation feels that way too. I'd say, speaking for you, we're so sorry, but um, that we feel relationships are important and critical and key, and hopefully these things will come with it. But I think the traditional approach to teaching step by step is still very present. And you know, I think especially being in Pete right now with things like EdTPA um, and hitting all of that criteria, it's still so structured, if not even more structured, than the way it was presented in this time that though those things are important and I think we're starting to address them more, it's almost like a constant conflict and trying to decide where to put time because they are required to meet certain criteria before they enter teaching and then continue meeting that criteria when they're evaluated each year in a similar manner as a TPA. So it makes it a little trickier. Yeah, and I think that those ed TPA things continue to structure us in that traditional way of the traditional way that, you know, Hoffman wrote about in this paper. And I think that you know, I I really, really hope that teachers are looking at, you know, relationships about SEL, about cultural competency and culturally responsive pedagogy. But again, going back to what he said at the end, if these, you know, teachers that are out there now are not, you know, on board with the change, it's just going to be this continuous cycle. And, you know, I think Hoffman, you know, was was pushed by this you know, research that had just come out or the model that Moss and stuff that came out right before that. And so he, he cited that and, you know, talked about the innovative, you know, teaching styles from Mostyn and, but he was pushing this idea of skill analysis. Like you're, you're a PE teacher. So are you able to, you know, differentiate skill or are you able to assess skill? And uh, he said that those are, that act is frequently subordinated to such peripheral behaviors as attendance taking, ability, loudness of the voice, poise, and organizational ability, the way they dress, and their personality. Meaning those last things are the things that are looked at as PE teachers more so than do you know how to correct skill? Or do you just have a really loud voice and, oh, that's a good PE teacher, wow takes command of the class really well. I, I can hear 
him or her from across the gym and look at how organized they are in rows or when they ask for a circle, it's a really complete circle, not just people, you know, going all around. And I don't think that oftentimes the relationship piece is visible. And he talked about in the paper of when the principal walks out, they want to see organization. They want to see a teacher that's in command. I don't know how many principals are going out and saying, how are your relationships with your students? I think good principals will ask that. Good principals will say, how are you so disconnected from your students? Or try to mentor that teacher to build relationships. But I think the passing by kind of observations that you know most teachers are talking about, oh, I got observed today, the principal came in, they looked busy, happy, good. All right, let's go, next, next class. Right. And so, um, I don't know. I, I just think that not a lot has changed in, in a very long time. I really hope that there's a push for this social emotional learning. I, I talked to Michael yesterday. I saw the, the five C's for, um, equity in Virginia, uh, department of education. And now they added in there is restorative practices. Like, they have these things that are in as the major things that sh- you know teachers should be addressing. And I think that's a call to PEAT programs to start adding that content in. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, I may be getting overly excited about it, but I do think there is a, a shift here um, toward thinking about social emotional learning and, and now trying to bake in some equity thinking with that, you know, I think it was conceptualized in a race-neutral way, and uh, society has has kind of brought race to our attention, and so now there's a pretty good conversation happening right there. Um, so I, I think, again, I think physical education just has an opportunity to start to move in that direction. Uh, we've got to demonstrate that we can actually do it and do it well. I know that we've claim that character development is a piece of physical education since um, my class reads an article from McCloy from 1930 about character development. Um, so, you know, this is nothing, this isn't new, right? But, you know, getting some evidence around that and, and trying to spell out how we, how we do that and how it can transfer to offer the school and community some benefits, uh, I think can really help move us forward. Yeah, and I think that, again, being siloed, I work so much in my day-to-day, and I just assume everybody knows about all this great work that we're doing, and um, everyone's on board with it. But truthfully, so many other areas have zero idea about, you know, sport-based positive development or social-emotional learning approaches that we've been taking. Um, So you're right, it's an opportunity to maybe start to make those connections. Um, and show that we are here and we've been succeeding and show what we can do. We have to find the ways to partner with those people and find the door that's cracked a little bit open so we can throw it all the way open. Yeah, absolutely. And then and, and a smooth segue here, hopefully I don't take this off the rails, but you talked about siloed and, and let me bring this up in what Michael sent me and everybody on the, on the call, he sent this video from a Nakahee lecture um, that Cheryl Hoffman gave, I think, in 2015. So we have links to this in the notes section. Um, so he accepts this Emeritus Award. It's actually a really good lecture. He's really funny. I've never met him. And so, you know, 
listening to him, he kind of like jabs at himself a little bit. And, you know, although the video camera movement is a little off and probably has like 30 views on, on YouTube, but I think, you know, it was a really good lecture, but one of the things he fights against is this idea of kinesiology and that he says that there are all these subfields, which physical education is one subfield of kinesiology, if we look at it in that way. And for there to be subfields, there needs to be a parent field, and that's kinesiology. And then he says, name one kinesiology theory. And that struck with me, you know, like, it was a great way to challenge it. I mean, what is kinesiology? We talk about it. Well, it's the art and science of human movement. We have all those like descriptions of it, but he pushed back on this a lot and asked, why is there biomechanics and kinesiology? And why is there a sport-based biomechanics in the science department? Like, Why is there sports psychology and kinesiology, not a sports wing of the psychology department? So my question to you is, should the home of PE be in the school of education versus being in a school of kinesiology? Are we a subdiscipline of education or are we a subdiscipline of kinesiology? And I know people have argued this. Roberta Rickley had a great article in this in, in uh, 2006 on where, what's the home of PE and what's the home of kinesiology and my students read that but you know we just made the move to the school of education at Mason and you know I feel like that's a really good alignment for us so what do you what do you think <laughs> um what a you know that's a big question I've been in both um I'm in a school of health sciences now department of kinesiology was in a school of education at College of Charleston. Uh, the the core disciplinary knowledge is in kinesiology. It seems like you know the movement science courses, and so having proximity to that seems important for students to have some in depth knowledge of what it means to move and um, what the cutting edge science is related to that, and even having a sense of these other so-called sub-disciplines and what the research is. Uh, but a lot of the things that we struggle with uh, in PE are pedagogical issues, you know, um, and clearly the home for that, the knowledge base for that is in schools of education. Um, so this is going to be an answer for me to say, I don't, I don't know. I, I came to UNCG thinking it should definitely be in uh, kinesiology or health science school. But, you know, I don't know. I think that when I go across campus, I have a couple of good colleagues from the School of Education. They are having a more uh, advanced conversation about education issues than we are having. Um, they're just further along. I mean, these like we I, I'm just looking through this really good book on social justice that you all are aware of by Wampaset and colleagues. And you know, it's just, to, it's new to us in physical education. It's not new over there. They're, like I show up and they're like, why are you bringing up old stuff? You know? <laughs> so, um, so I'm not sure. I think that maybe that it, it can be different for everyone, but the question should be like, where do you want to be in physical education? Do you want to be grounded in these issues of pedagogy and say that this is what we're good at? Or do you want to be grounded in issues of kinesiology and saying our students are well-versed in, uh, the movement science side of things. 
What do you think, Tori? I can see that argument. Um, my opinion is education. I think that based on our conversation today and, and where I see our field going, hopefully that is that partnership route. So in order for us to be able to connect with, as physical education, connect with the other teachers in the school, connect with after school, connect with you know parents, social workers, all these other people that education is already partnering with, then we should be housed in education to continue having those relationships. I do think having the kinesiology knowledge and having that those roots is important, but I don't think it's going to be what's going to push us to become or help us become something that's not this traditional approach because it is so movement-based, it's so sport-based, which is phenomenal in its own right, but it is not helping change our status quo where the College of Ed, I think, could. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a bunch of classes that our students take that are really foundational for their understanding of the human body. Anatomy, physiology, you should probably have that if you're going to be a PE teacher. But does it need to be anatomy, physiology with pre-med students? Or does it need to be anatomy, physiology for, for teaching? For, you know, do you understand these, how the body moves? Is the biomechanics the same thing that a biomechanics undergraduate major needs? Or is it biomechanics for physical education? And I'm not saying dumb it down. I'm saying we talk about pedagogical issues. Like those are the things that we need more of. And we just had a podcast a couple episodes back on the increase in, or the number of general education credits that PE teachers take in, in college. And so, like, can we shave some of that off? Would it look different if you're not trying to get a kinesiology degree, which at Cal State Fullerton, it's a kinesiology degree with an emphasis in physical education. And then you go into a licensure program after that in California, you have the fifth year. But you know, they're taking a ton of motor development, sports psych, statistics, all of these different classes. Whereas, you know, that's, again, it's totally different in different places. And I don't want to, you know, put you on the spot to really like, make a stand for this. But I think, Michael, you bring up good points. Like, when you go into a college of education, and you sit in on the conversations, you look at them, and you're like, okay, you're really far ahead on this compared to maybe the department meetings that are happening in kinesiology because PE is just one small part of a kinesiology department, whereas education is education. And you, we can hopefully kind of, um, you know, pull in from, from a lot of those discussions happening there. So let's, uh, let's just cap it off here. Um, thank you so much, um, Michael. Uh, Tori, any other final comments or, uh, you know, suggestions for future reading or any uh, suggestions for people who are reading this paper, what they should kind of think about or uh, or discuss? I don't have anything added aside from I do think it's worth a look just because it is shocking how similar it is to our current day. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'll mention for context a bit about uh, Cheryl Hoffman, uh, since I'm at UNC Greensboro, he is a professor emeritus of kinesiology at UNCG, still lives in Greensboro, and occasionally uh, see him around campus uh, and still keeps up with the department. He was a department chair for 10 years here at UNCG and stayed on for another 10 or so as uh, a professor and is um, kind of seen as the uh, the thought leader behind our doctor of education and kinesiology program and this idea of 
um, professional doctorate degrees, one of the only uh, ones in the country is now an online model, and it's the, my home as a faculty member at UNCG. And so and I was really good to read some of his work. I've met him a few times, but, you know, had not had a chance to read his work. And he, you may have read his book as an undergraduate student, uh, Introduction to Kinesiology, which he co-authors with, um, I think it's Dwayne Knudsen. Yeah. A bit of a shout out to Cheryl. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, uh, maybe you can send the link to him um, and have, have him listen to us discussing his, his 1971 article. He'll probably, he's probably forgotten about it already. Uh, so thank you. Uh, really appreciate it. And thanks everybody for listening. You can use the hashtag HPE research to uh, connect with us uh, on Twitter and um, we'll see you there.